Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. From Te the great void where nothing existed, and to Po, the perpetual night of darkness, comes the Māori story of creation. In this darkness, imprisoned between their parents, who were locked in a never-ending embrace, lived the children of the gods, Ranganui, Sky Father, and Papa Tuanuku, Earth Mother. The love between Ranganui and Papa Tuanuku was so immense that they could not bear to be apart. Yet by clinging to each other, the parents were also keeping their six children from the light. That was until one day, when as Ranganui stirred, a single beam of light shone from Papatuanuku's armpit onto her children. Amazed by this radiance, the children yearned to free themselves and enter the world of light. So the children began to work on breaking the embrace that had kept their universe dark for so long. But their parents' love was strong and their efforts were fruitless. Then the mighty Tane Mahuta, god of the forest, lay on his back and dug his shoulders deep into his mother's body. With his legs, Tane pushed against his father and with all the strength he could summon attempted to let light into the world. Ignoring his mother's cries to stop, Tane pushed even harder and the bond between his parents began to tear. Drawing on his very last reserves, Tane fully extended his powerful legs, forcing Ranganui to the heavens and flooding the world with bright light. Today, when Ranganui's tears fall from the sky as rain onto his beloved Papatunuku, it is a reminder of his grief and longing for her. Papatuanuku's pain is visible in the red ochre clays of the earth, still stained by the blood drawn during the separation. This is a legend of creation told by the Māori people of New Zealand and retold here by Tourism New Zealand. It has been passed down through generation after generation, retaining its tragedy and simplicity, the birth of the world and of light and people. Māori mythology predates written language. Stories were passed down through generations. Experts in the legends were known as tahunga, and they specialised in a variety of disciplines, from foretelling the future to woodcarving or building canoes, called waka. Tahunga were revered in their communities for their gifts, which often included the ability to carefully retell ancient myths and legends from the spiritual realm through prayer, poetry and song. They learned their craft from the tohunga that came before them, and they too would pass on the skills of their trade to the next generation of gifted artisans and charismatic figures of the tribe. A central element of the retelling of stories was a focus on whakapapa, or genealogy, as this gave a temporal scale to historic events, both those of a grand mythical scale and those in more recent living memory. Stories connected the people with their past their mythological heroes, and gave them a place in a contiguous narrative. From these stories came not only reflection on the past and appreciation for lineage, but cultural identity itself, as beliefs, norms and values were forged through the legends passed down through many generations. Dictates of life and death, 
the land and the spirit, were personified in legends which held sacred significance to the people. Much as we follow ideologies and belief structures today, whether religious, conceptual or institutional, we too pass on stories which we use to construct a world which, as far as the universe is concerned, is entirely fictional and anthropocentric. Myths, legends and stories are fundamental to Homo sapiens, humans, as a social species that has survived for millennia in harsh climates and against the persistent threat of animals more powerful and adapted for survival than we are. Homo sapiens was not stronger, faster, larger, more vicious or nimble. No, the adaptation that allowed Homo sapiens to survive and grow to dominate all other living creatures was the mind and its ability to form complex narratives linking the past, the present, and the future. This episode is about the importance of stories, both at the macro scale in terms of the origins of humanity as a social animal, and at the micro scale, the self-narrative of the individual, the you that emerges from the clatter and noise of life. Somehow, despite the enormity of the universe, of the planet Earth and of the continual reminder of nature and circumstance of our powerlessness, we remain defiant, emboldened to stand up to the odds stacked against us. Our resilience, our will, our sense of belonging, of community and of identity comes from the stories we tell. Bollywood director Shikha Kapoor says, We are the stories we tell ourselves. They make us who we are. It is always a challenge to decide what to focus on in an episode of the Here and Now podcast, and this one has been perhaps the most challenging. The directions one could go, the depth and breadth is virtually limitless. Careers are devoted to studies of storytelling from archaeologists and anthropologists to psychologists and cognitive neuroscientists. There is far more to consider than I can do credence to here. So as we go through this episode, remember, this is but a snapshot, a quick look at a few points which stood out to me as I made my way through various resources and the effort to tell you a story, a story about stories. We tend to think of stories as words on pages, but this is a relatively recent development. For the majority of human history, stories have existed only in the minds of their tellers. The dream stories of the Aboriginal people of Australia, or the towering volcano that was to become a lake told by the Klamath people of North America many thousands of years ago, are common examples of oral histories passed down through generations. Yet storytelling goes back even further than this, to the cave paintings of Indonesia, France and Spain, which have been dated as some 30, 40 or even 60,000 years old. It is almost impossible to imagine the life of those ancient painters, what messages they were sending us from that distant past. But we are related, even after all of this time, by our shared love of stories. Stories serve to literally construct the world that we inhabit. They tell us who we are, where we have come from, how we should act and behave. They teach us right from wrong who we should love and respect, and who are our enemies. How we should conduct ourselves in every facet of life, from the most mundane of tasks to the most sacred. Stories are a universal language of culture, and in many ways the essence of life and what it means to be human. Jordan Peterson, in his own epic Maps of Meaning, says, Our very cultures are erected upon the foundation of a single great story. Paradise, encounter with chaos, fall and redemption. Have you ever watched a memory expert recite the order of a pack of cards? A technique they might use is to create a story with every item that they memorize, 
They might visualise a place they know well, say their home, and tell the story of getting home. They walk in the door and there's the Queen of Hearts. They put their keys on the side table and there is the Ten of Clubs. They hang up their coat and see the Six of Diamonds, and so on and so on. They tell themselves a story, attaching each item to be remembered to another aspect of the story which they know well. A truly remarkable feat of memory is routinely performed by Akira Haraguchi, a retired Japanese engineer who recited Pi to 100,000 decimal places in 2006. This is the unofficial world record. Haraguchi developed a method of assigning kana symbols, a system of Japanese writing, to the numbers, allowing him to recall Pi as a collection of stories. That's a lot of stories. The act of forming a narrative through storytelling helps to retain information, and is an important and useful memorization tool. Memory experts know this well. They also know that we all use stories as a way of mapping out our reality. In fact, our brains are optimized to remember information this way through the so-called episodic memory. But our episodic memory isn't particularly accurate, as any police detective will attest. But the issue is not that we don't want to remember things accurately. It's that our brain creates a version of reality which fits in with our assumptions and biases and connects the small sliver of information that it actually perceives from the huge flood of sensory, cognitive and emotional stimuli it is constantly bombarded by as we go about our lives. Jordan Peterson describes the stories we tell ourselves as maps of meaning, a cognitive behavioural repertoire that tells us how to act to maximise our positive emotional salience. This process begins in the right hemisphere of the brain, the imaginative, creative side, which has the ability to decode non-linguistic speech and language, and the capacity to understand imagery, symbols, and metaphor. The left hemisphere then completes the story by forming it into a logical structure that exists with temporal continuity, consistency, and coding for expression through speech. Our stories are formed in our imagination, and then converted into something orderly that can be conveyed externally. But something gets lost in this process. We can't convert and rationalise all that goes on in the right brain. Our imagination is a world of dreams which we can never fully understand, let alone communicate. Our stories are therefore only a representation, never quite reaching the truth, and thus we remain condemned to reside within ourselves, living two narratives that we can never quite reconcile. But our brains do get pretty close most of the time, as evidenced by the social development of children who can understand and obey the laws of social interaction long before they can articulate them from abstraction and provide the reasons why they must behave in certain ways. Stories are codified, therefore, as heuristics or mental shortcuts that govern how we see the world and act within it. They form and shape our unique ontology, our worldview, upon which we build our cultural and perceptual structures. We are indoctrinated into conceptualizing reality, into stories from a very early age. We reduce most of the things we do in life to mini-epics, the story of how to brush our teeth or how to get ready for work, and we can add many layers of increasing complexity until we have a complete story of who we are. It is a saga of tragedy and triumph, of good fortune and curses, of pain and joy, Each episode in our lives takes on a meaning, like the chapters of a book, which we mould and shape over the years, adjusting our views as they soften and solidify with each retelling, or map onto our perceptions of who we are, and who we want to be. This has nothing to do with reality, and it doesn't have to, because more important for our stories is authenticity. They are stories after all, 
but their lack of truth or accuracy does nothing to diminish their value and their importance to us or the others who may feature in them or be a witness to them, because they are our stories. Yuval Noah Harari, historian, philosopher, and author of the excellent book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, helps us to understand why stories have such significance in building the social structures that support our lives. He says, But why are stories important? After all, fiction can be dangerously misleading or distracting. People who go to the forest looking for fairies and unicorns would seem to have less chance of survival than people go who go looking for mushrooms and deer. And if you spend hours praying to non-existent guardian spirits, aren't you wasting precious time? Time's better spent foraging, fighting and fornicating? But fiction has enabled us not merely to imagine things, but to do so collectively. We can weave common myths such as the biblical creation story, the dreamtime myths of the Aboriginal Australians, and the nationalist myths of modern states. Such myths give sapiens the unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Ants and bees can also work together in huge numbers, but they do so in a very rigid manner and only with those close relatives. Wolves and chimpanzees cooperate far more flexibly than ants, but they can do so only with small numbers of other individuals that they know intimately. Sapiens can cooperate in extremely flexible ways with countless numbers of strangers. That's why sapiens rule the world, whereas ants eat our leftovers and chimps are locked up in zoos and research laboratories. Telling effective stories is not easy. The difficulty lies not in telling the story, but in convincing everyone else to believe it. Much of history revolves around this question. How does one convince millions of people to believe particular stories about gods or nations or limited liability companies? Yet when it succeeds, it gives sapiens immense power because it enables millions of strangers to cooperate and work toward common goals. Just try to imagine how difficult it would have been to create states or churches or legal systems if we could speak only about things that really exist, such as rivers, trees and lions. The rise of human civilization revolved around telling stories and convincing people to believe them. The self-narratives we develop are a psychological mechanism through which we become who we are, an individual experiencing things, doing things, and finding meaning and purpose. Perhaps this process serves an evolutionary purpose important for survival, and this is particularly so for gifted storytellers. Researchers of the tribal Agta people in the Philippines found storytellers had more children and were among the most respected people of their communities, more so even than hunters, fishermen or foragers. But perhaps storytelling is necessary only for us to stick around long enough to continue to survive, because through stories, we can ascribe meaning and purpose to our lives, which can make suffering through hard times seem worthwhile. We know instinct alone is more than capable of ensuring we fulfil our physiological needs. We are surrounded by creatures of the animal kingdom, which act in precisely this way after all. So the higher evolutionary purpose of stories and the self-narrative is something else. It both keeps us alive and it keeps us together. Stories make us empathetic. When it is a good one, we can't help but put ourselves in the shoes of the teller. We are enthralled by fiction novels and movies because we see ourselves in the characters, we feel their pain, we cry their tears and exult in their joy. We live their stories as they live theirs, and we can't wait to share the journey with others. Did you see the new film? Oh, it's amazing! I've just read the most wonderful book, the story was so unique, we tell our friends. But the truth is, it probably wasn't. 
Christopher Booker claims there are only seven basic plots in his lengthy tome, The Seven Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories. These are repeated over and over in film and television, and in novels with just slight tweaks. The seven plots are Overcoming the Monster, a plot seen in tales like Beowulf or Independence Day. The Rags to Riches plot, with the well-known plot of Cinderella, or the narrative of Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones. Then there's the quest plot, which could be as trivial as The Hangover, or as epic as The Lord of the Rings. The next is the plot of Voyage and Return, common to many fairy tales and children's stories, such as Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland or C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. There are also plots of rebirth, like Sleeping Beauty and Beauty and the Beast. And finally, the plot of comedy, which often ends in marriage, and Shakespeare's personal favourite, The Tragedy, which often ends in death. It is hard to believe that all stories can be reduced to these seven basic plot lines. Indeed, many interweave multiple plots within them, so we may be kept on our escapist toes. However, this is not revolutionary knowledge. Authors know these plots well, and simply map out the arcs of their characters according to the broad schema established many millennia ago, around campfires and stone houses, and the caves and castles of old. As we have seen, the question is not then, why do we tell stories? But why are they so important to us? And Booker explains, When an acorn falls to the ground, it contains all the genetic information it needs to grow up into a perfect, fully developed oak tree. When a baby human is born, it contains all the genetic programming it needs to develop physically into a fully grown man or woman. What it does not have is the instinctive programming to ensure that it will eventually grow up psychologically into a fully mature human being. It is precisely this lack for which the archetypical patterns which underlie storytelling have emerged through evolution to compensate. So, according to Booker, stories teach us who we are and how to behave in the world. We have the genetic programming, the nature to become adults, but our cultural and psychological programming needs nurture, and this comes through stories. But while our inner stories are seemingly reducible to these basic plots, economist Tyler Cohen says, we shall be weary of thinking of our lives in such simplistic terms. More realistically, our lives are messy, disordered and incomplete, but we are drawn to finding meaning through stories because it is the way in which we understand our own world and the worlds of others. How we interpret the meaning of those stories and use them as a gateway for accessing reality is far more nuanced and individual. Stories reveal something of the inner world of the teller and their ontology. We are all the hero of our own saga, Yet the battles we fight, who we fight them against and whether we triumph or are defeated, varies largely according to our personality. We all know the cup-half-full, half-empty cliché, which proffers insight into the optimism or pessimism of an individual. How we frame ourselves within our stories says a lot about our psychological capital, the innate level of hope, optimism, resilience and self-efficacy which we all have. We may slay great dragons on our quest through life, like how we triumphed over the frustratingly pedantic clerk at the transport department, or be served a great injustice by a queue jumper at the post office. We don't often see our lives in this narrative way, and perhaps trivial matters such as this are not relevant. However, it is the longer-running sagas that characterise our lives that give more colour and shape to our sense of self, our purpose, and the journey we are on. How we cope with grief, setbacks and failure is nested within how we frame ourselves in the narrative of our lives. But it is not a fixed, constant thing. It evolves over time. Some things take on new meanings, 
Others lose the meanings we may have assigned to them when they've run their course or served their purpose. Identifying those narratives that hold us back and keep us bogged down in negativity and victimhood can free us to continue on our journey and reframe our narrative to one that is formative, where we slay the dragon rather than become consumed by its fire. But it is crucial that we identify those stories we tell which are misleading or maybe holding us back. Therapist Laurie Gottlieb says, All of us walk around with stories about our lives, why choices were made, why things went wrong, why we treated someone a certain way, why they treated us a certain way. Stories are the way we make sense of our lives. But what happens when the stories we tell are misleading or incomplete or just wrong? Well, instead of providing clarity, these stories keep us stuck. We assume that our circumstances shape our stories. But what I've found time and again in my work is that the exact opposite happens. The way we narrate our lives shapes what they become. That's the danger of our stories, because they can really mess us up. But it is also their power. There is such power and value in understanding the macro, high-level narrative that it is a tool that is used to help those suffering from post-traumatic stress. It's known as narrative exposure therapy. When we experience trauma, whether from the loss of a loved one or being the victim of a crime or accident, or from witnessing a traumatic event or maybe many, we can become overwhelmed by its magnitude. They can take over our lives. Traumatic events are so powerful that they reduce virtually everything else to triviality and they don't fit with the normal path of life we were on or that we envisaged for our future. Those suffering PTSD may be constantly reminded of the event, fearful of experiencing something similar again, and they may retreat further into themselves and from society as they try to escape their fears and the shame they may feel as a result. They can become trapped in a cycle of re-experiencing the trauma, and it consumes their life so that the past self and a potential self of the future are lost sometimes forever. A treatment that can be useful for some people is to try to reconcile the traumatic events to a wider narrative. The event is not seen as a catastrophic episode which destroyed the pre-trauma person and their hope of a future. It is reframed as something that happened and something that can and must be moved past. The individual learns to accept that the trauma is part of their story, but it is not the end of the story and nor is it all of the story. This process is not simple, easy or effective for all people, but by working with knowledge of our psychology to map reality onto a plotline which we understand and can identify ourselves within, takes advantage of the evolutionary drive we have to tell stories and to be characters in our own narratives and escape the vicious cycle of post-traumatic stress. This process can even be applied at a much larger scale when reconciling the opposing views and historical narratives of those on opposite sides of a conflict. Dr. Gordon Club, a lecturer in international security at Leeds University, looked at how reframing past narratives allowed for the resolution of armed resistance by the Irish Republican Army and their eventual voluntary disarming in 2005. Club says, Just as militant group leaders construct a frame to justify and mobilise a terrorism campaign, they also have to construct a frame to justify and demobilise a terrorism campaign. In the case of the PIRA, the frame or narrative for peace needed to fit in with the narrative that mobilised the force in the 1960s. It needed to honour the legacy of the cause and those lost fighting for it. Peace was not achieved through concession, although compromise is always necessary, but through allowing both sides to reconcile their narrative histories with the resolution of conflict, even in the absence of total victory or total defeat. 
Daryl Cooper of the Epic Martyr Made podcast echoes the sentiment in the concluding remarks of his six-episode, 25-plus-hour history and analysis of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when he says, If this conflict is going to end with any result other than the total destruction of one of the two sides, it'll be when someone figures out how to tell the story in a way that allows both sides to feel that their suffering has been acknowledged. Indeed, stories account not only for how we see ourselves in the world, but how we see entire civilizations, just like the story of Tane Mahute or Adam and Eve and many, many others going back as far as human history itself. How do we dramatise the close calls and near-death experiences that occur in our lives from time to time? We say, and then, as the jaws of the crocodile open wide, I saw my life flash before my eyes. It's a funny thing that in our last gasp, when we think our time is over, we come back to our narrative. The long and convoluted history of us we reduce to a series of flashes before our eyes. It is not a long chain of connected events influenced and nudged by experiences that come in sizes of small, medium and large. It is a series of snapshots, turning points and moments that define us, or that we define ourselves by. But our lives are much richer and full of detail and messiness which contributes as much, if not more, to who we are than the major events which we we may recount in our telling of our personal stories. In fairness, we can't keep track, let alone understand the subtle influences of life, the ones that gently nudge us along. They are mostly imperceptible and visible to the naked third eye. Yet they are there regardless, and we would do well to step back and notice the present as it happens, and remember that our narrative The story of who we are is not one of seven plot lines, but a long-running drama. There are some TV shows which you can miss a few episodes of and pick straight back up where you left off, because, well, the plot's obvious. It's just one of those plots we know so well. But there are others where to miss a single detail is to miss the point altogether. Each of our lives is like that, although it can just as easily be reduced to a predictable plot if we choose to get hung up on certain events and convince ourselves that things are a certain way. Some myths and legends are passed down through generation after generation, remaining largely the same. But each life of ours is rich, varied and unique, and our story will never quite be captured in its entirety, and it will definitely never be told again. So be the hero in your story, but turn each page slowly, read every word, and don't stop until every dragon has been slayed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>